The CDC estimates as many as one out of five children experience a mental health disorder in a given year. An estimated $247 billion is spent each year on treating and managing childhood mental health disorders. A Lurie Children's report from 2022 indicated that 18% of parents in Chicago said they could not access mental or behavioral health services they wanted for their child during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Even before the pandemic, rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts among youth increased. The pandemic exacerbated those issues, disrupting learning, relationships, routines, and increasing isolation, especially among children. Nationally, more than 40% of teens said they struggle with persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, and more than half of parents and caregivers express concern over their child's mental well-being. In President Biden's 2022 State of the Union address, he puts forward a comprehensive national strategy to tackle the youth mental health crisis. A few weeks later, Governor J.B. Pritzker put forth Illinois' plan to address the crisis with the Children's Behavioral Health Transformation Initiative. With the aim of building a coordinated interagency approach to ensure access to care and transparency for parents and caregivers in the process. In the latest installment of the HC3 podcast, we had the privilege of engaging in a thought-provoking conversation with Dr. Dana Weiner, who was appointed by Governor Pritzker to spearhead this important initiative. Dana brings with her a wealth of experience garnered from years of dedicated research and consulting, and she stands as a staunch advocate for children's welfare. This is the HC3 Podcast. We're your hosts, David Smith and Megan Phillip. The presenting sponsor for the HC3 Podcast is Rosecrans. Rosecrans is a private, nonprofit organization and nationally recognized leader in treating mental health and substance use disorders for children, teens, young adults, adults, and families. With over 60 locations in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, their physician-led team has developed an innovative, multidisciplinary, outcomes-informed approach. Rosecrans's comprehensive continuum of care includes individual, group and family therapy, residential care for teens and adults with on-site detox services, intensive outpatient care and continuing care, family support and education, virtual outpatient services, alumni programming and parent support groups, and prevention and early intervention education for students and communities. Since 1916, their unmatched legacy as a proven behavioral health care leader is a source of hope and strength to those they serve. Rosecrans served more than 50,000 people last year. I'm Dana Weiner. I am a clinical psychologist by training and a researcher in practice and have spent the last 25 years or so providing technical assistance, data analytic consultation, program evaluation, and strategic implementation support to child welfare, juvenile justice, and mental health service systems in Illinois and across the country. I'm a senior policy fellow at Chapin Hall at the University of Chicago, but I'm currently on loan to Governor Pritzker, who in February of 2022 commissioned a report to understand the challenges in our children's behavioral health service system. So that initiative is called the Children's Behavioral Health Transformation Initiative. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, what was the catalyst? You said there was a study. Why was this so important to Governor Pritzker? Why now as opposed to a couple years from now or a couple years ago? What's, what's special and unique about this initiative in the moment? 
So the transformation initiative kicked off in February of 2022 in response to a couple of things. So mental health problems among young people were on the rise even before the pandemic, but certainly the isolation and uncertainty and stress of the pandemic exacerbated those. So we were in the midst of a children's mental health crisis. The pandemic also lessened our capacity to address those problems because it prompted a workforce shortage. But I think one of the high profile issues that was on everyone's mind at that time in February of 2022 was that there were about 55 kids who were psychiatrically hospitalized beyond medical necessity. They were in DCFS custody and the DCFS director was being held in contempt of court over the delays in providing those kids with the residential treatment that they needed. So I think that was kind of the impetus, but I think there was a recognition by Governor Pritzker and others that there was a growing youth mental health crisis and that if we didn't take a systematic and rigorous look at our system to try to understand what some of the big picture challenges were and systemic solutions, that the problem would continue to grow. Well, it's a remarkable area for him to have taken some leadership on, because obviously this is not a new epidemic in the city of Chicago and the state and the country. But to your point, like so many other things, COVID really did give us a different lens on this, not only in the nature of the challenge, but then just COVID's natural exacerbation of it. I've got three young children, 11-year-old daughter, 8-year-old son, um, 9-year-old son, (laughs) just had a birthday and the six-year-old daughter and watching them kind of pre-COVID, during COVID, and now as we've kind of come out of COVID, at least as we would have defined it in 2020, 2021, and to watch them try to reintegrate socially. It's amazing, not only the things they went through being so isolated, but all the skills that they were unable to develop during those formative periods for wherever they were on their journey. What some of the, what are the initial objectives of this initiative and how are you organizing to pursue those objectives? The two main goals were to ensure that youth with mental health problems could get the treatment and services that they need and to have their families have transparency and clarity about how to access those resources. I did want to comment on what you mentioned about the pandemic, though, because while the pandemic exacerbated youth mental health problems, it also illuminated some opportunities for systems change because in these big bureaucracies where we tend to think that change is very, very slow, These systems had to change overnight. They had to, in really just a matter of weeks, develop a whole new way of responding to families. And while that was challenging and problematic and we wouldn't choose to go through that pandemic, it also illustrated that there is a little bit more agility than we think there is. And I think also it moved the needle on stigma among young people who were, I think, more readily able to acknowledge that people are struggling and that all of us at any age are struggling. But I think we're seeing some of the ramifications of that play out now among young people who are a little bit more comfortable acknowledging when they need help. Silver lining. (laughs) It is a silver lining. And I think it's a really important, powerful one. It's hard to look at the COVID period and kind of think anything positively about it. But there were some amazing things that came out of it. And I think cultural change and stigma across the board, youth and adults, those changes were really powerful. And what's exciting about this is that there is a 
dialogue within younger members of our communities who they're not afraid to say when they're feeling depressed, isolated, anxious, and the intergenerational effects of that in our future is going to be really powerful. Mm -hmm. Say what you will about Gen Zers, but they kind of understand the notion of mindfulness and balance and well-being. And it's the first generation, maybe in human history, that I think has really understood and embraced this stuff culturally, like ever. Yes. I would agree. And I think that will help us address the problems that we're facing. Well, and then to have the work you're doing meeting up with that right at the same time is, I think, going to be an accelerant for that. In the initiative, there's five different goals to improve services over the course of time. I'd love to dig into each of these, but can you just kind of give a flyover of like what those five goals are and how you're thinking about them? Mm -hmm. So I spoke with a lot of people during this 10-month period from the time the report was commissioned to the time it was delivered to the governor's office. And I heard lots of explanations, hypotheses, so to speak, about why we're facing a crisis. And some of them had to do with, we don't have enough of what we need. And certainly in some places that is the case. But a lot of people talked about the difficulty accessing the services that are there, difficulty knowing what's there, and the lack of transparency, particularly for families and understanding how to qualify for things, and then how to get those things. It's also clear that we can't solve this problem with a capacity solution alone because we're in the midst of a workforce crisis and we can't add services infinitely, which means we have to reduce demand while we're increasing supply. And that's where we get to that intervene earlier. A lot of the acute crises that we see that land kids in the emergency room or in a psychiatric hospitalization had issues like trauma or depression or anxiety or behavioral problems been addressed earlier, we might not be seeing those acute crises. So I'm kind of explaining how these goals came out of the things that I heard as I moved around the state and talked to people, including families and people with lived experience. So adjusting capacity, making it easier to get to the things we have by streamlining processes, intervening earlier. And then the other two are really system goals. So increasing accountability has to do with improving the relationships between the state agencies that administer programs and the private providers that deliver the services. Because much of our service system is actually delivered by private social service agencies. So improving those relationships, making it easier for those social service agencies to do business with the state and to deliver services and get paid for those services and also to have them be monitored, all of that is increasing accountability. And then the last one is developing agility, which is something I referred to in thinking about the opportunity that the pandemic kind of highlighted. Developing agility means building an ability as a state to pivot when we recognize that the needs of the population are changing, when we have an increase in a particular type of need, being able to relatively quickly build our capacity to deliver services that address that. Typically, that has not been the case. The state's contracting processes can be not agile, not able to respond in a quick way to a change in need. I love the interconnectedness each of them has with each other. I do want to dig into each of these with a little bit of depth, and I'm probably going to spend a little bit more time on this first one around adjusting capacity and the infrastructure. And let's get this one out of the way. Workforce, you mentioned it. It's obviously this is problematic across the board. What is the initiative's kind of mandate around trying to extend or expand that? Is that an area of focus for 
you all in your work and what are some of the recommendations or, or the thoughts that are starting to come out of the work you're doing? Yeah, so I should mention that we're working in partnership with the governor's behavioral health workforce initiative, which is run out of the University of Illinois Chicago School of Social Work and Southern Illinois University. So there are researchers in both of those places who are leading an effort to conduct gap analyses to understand where we need more trained staff in the behavioral health workforce. The part of the workforce issue that the Transformation Initiative is working on has more to do with thinking flexibly about what other roles do we need in the behavioral health workforce and working collaboratively with DMH and HFS and other state agencies to ensure that we have that capacity. So I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Kids who have individualized education plans or IEPs to receive services in schools, sometimes they qualify for a one-on-one aid. That's a person who might sit next to them in class to keep them focused or stable or calm. That's not a highly trained, it's not a position that requires graduate school or even a college degree. It requires a certification and some training, but that's the kind of role that we could build more of. We used to call those paraprofessionals. Some people are calling them mental health extenders. They might rely on people who have lived experience or are um, credentialed as peer supporters. There are a couple of credentials that we currently maybe underutilize in our state that we could deploy to provide in-home supports that would help parents to maintain the stability of their child in the home that could alleviate a crisis or the need for more intensive services. So what our team is doing as recommendation 11 in the blueprint is to work on expanding the workforce by thinking creatively and working with the state agencies on what credentialing approaches are needed that could leverage some workforce extenders, people who might not be obtaining a graduate degree but still have a valuable role to play, either as a peer supporter or one thing we call them as personal support workers who could provide in-home services. That's just one example of the way that we're trying to complement the work of the Behavioral Health Workforce Initiative. Just to keep on the same subject for a minute, how are you thinking about the differentiators as you're developing those new positions and roles? What are the challenges in recruiting those from an urban setting and a rural setting and trying to bridge those gaps? That's a really good question. So my colleagues and I at Chapin Hall have taken a geospatial approach to understanding service accessibility and gaps and needs, and that will provide us with the ability to pursue a targeted strategy around recruiting. We've developed maps that take into account the differences in service-seeking behavior of people in rural areas versus urban areas. And when you apply that to maps of the state, paired with information about where services are currently located, it gives us a much better idea of where we need to target resources so that we can develop the workforce according to what the population needs. That makes sense. I'm just curious, as you think about where you're trying to fill those resource gaps and put those strategies in place, how are you thinking thinking about what the reimbursement or funding streams are to support those efforts? And is it coming directly from patients through their care providers, whether it's Medicaid or otherwise, or directly from schools? Like what are sort of the various streams that Mm -hmm. help bolster and make these things possible? So I should back up and say in response to that, that we are at a very unique moment in time because we have the support of the executive branch in the governor's office and the general assembly in the legislative branch and the advocacy community 
and robust analytic partnerships. And all of this together is making it easier and more productive to target resources to where they need to be. In answer to your question about what funding sources we're tapping, we're working directly with HFS on maximizing the opportunity to claim federal funds. We're working with the Illinois State Board of Education on a couple of things that were in legislation that passed in this last legislative session around better understanding what schools need based on the contextual factors, like how much adversity is in communities and what the mental health service need is likely to be. There also was $23 million in the governor's proposed budget this year for initiatives related to implementing the blueprint recommendations. So we're really experiencing a lot of support that is coalescing around these targeted strategies. One of the things I kind of picked up on here is you use the term adjust capacity and, and not increase capacity. And I don't know how deliberate that was, but, but the reason I'm zeroing in on it and I love it is because we already have, we do have a tremendous amount of infrastructure in this city and in this state to support these needs. Now, I would agree with an argument that it's probably not enough infrastructure, but there's a lot of infrastructure. And when we think about and start breaking that infrastructure down, we think about it in the context of community mental health centers, schools, and and the support staffs and administrators, law enforcement, right, as stewards of our communities. And we know that we don't make optimal use of that infrastructure as it exists today. So aside from the work that, that the initiatives do, Doing to, to increase that infrastructure. How are you thinking about these other really important spokes to this hub and how those can be improved, streamlined, made more efficient? So you know, we, we don't necessarily have to hire a hundred, I'm using making this number up, a hundred quote unquote paraprofessionals, but because of increased infrastructure, we really just need 30 or 40. I'm being super abstract with that, but talk through how you guys are thinking about that. I think there's a couple of things that are, are important to understand here. I have always taken a, what I would call a strengths-based approach to understanding community need, which is not to come into a place and say, oh, this is just broken and we don't have what we need and we need to come in from the outside and figure out what's going on. Oh, good for you, Dana. That's music <laughs> to my ears. But rather to come in and say, what's working here? What exactly. what are the strengths we can leverage? Who are the people? Who who where where is the infrastructure? And what can we use of the things that are here? Because what I found, and I've I've been working since 2002 on building different technological applications that help people see the resources that are actually in their communities. Because I think oftentimes the perception is we don't have what we need, but really it's not a service gap so much as it is an information gap and a communication gap. And there isn't the transparency and the readily available information. So you can pick up your phone and make restaurant reservations somewhere in Arizona, but you can't pick up your phone and know where all the mental health service providers, after school programs, and other things are in your community in one place. So that's really what we're trying to do with the centerpiece recommendation, the blueprint, the care portal, which is in essence like a routing application that will get people to the place where they need to be to get more information about the services that are available. The fourth recommendation in the blueprint, the resource referral technology, is meant to put on everybody's smartphone the application that can get people to the services they need. That also requires quite a bit of collaboration and 
and community network building. So one of the things that has happened over the last 10 to 20 years has been that the local area networks that had been stood up in the aftermath of deinstitutionalization to make sure that every community was covered with a community-based solution, a community mental health center, and then a network of providers with representation from state agencies, those have largely fallen off. There are a few communities in Illinois that ha still have a thriving local area network or LAN. So one of the things that we're doing as part of recommendation number 12, which is to fortify community we're networks. We're going to through all 12 recommendations to. <laughs> through the, the course of the discussion. Just connecting the dots. <laughs> so one of the things we're doing in the service of recommendation 12, which is to fortify community networks, is to inventory where are the thriving networks, whether they're local area networks mm. or an SOC grant, maybe from SAMHSA or from the Illinois Children's Healthcare Foundation or an organically developing network that's maybe anchored by a hospital or a provider. And so in building a map of those, then we can see, okay, where are there places in the state where people are living and might be in need of services and there isn't a network there? And who can we connect them with? We're also going to be installing parent leadership within those community networks to ensure that there's representation of and really partnership with people with lived experience. But we have a lot of rebuilding to do with that infrastructure. I want to just ask one last question on the adjust capacity thread here. And then I want to zero in on schools for a moment. I've been really intrigued by this over the course of the last few months. I was telling Megan before we started that we did an episode on the cost of care recently that was focused on this Montessori school in Hayward, California, that I think just has a few hundred students, but they have six full-time mental health professionals that literally you know, work 40, 50 hour weeks and they have a panel and the amount of access these young people have, you know, K through 12 to a trained mental health professional is incredible. And they kind of have to fund that in some really unique ways. But the reason the story was so salient is there's a young man named Xander who right after graduating from the school, he tried to take his life and threw himself on a BART track in, in Oakland and he survived and he's thriving now. But those resources had not been made available to him prior to the pandemic. And so he entered the pandemic with that isolationism and, and anxiety and loneliness and all these kinds of things. But then to hear what this school has kind of implemented since Xander story is this just incredible thing and the results they're getting are amazing and we think about downstream impacts for upstream investments like this is a no-brainer and yet scaling something like this feels really difficult how is the initiative thinking about schools as platforms to outside of IEP but to just have a, a ready steady base of mental health supports for these young people when they need it some schools and school districts in Illinois have made great progress in implementing social-emotional learning curricula and other strategies, some of which are dependent on resources. But what ISBE, the Illinois State Board of Education, is doing as part of implementing recommendation number nine, which is working toward universal screening in schools. I feel like we need a bingo card here. <laughs> <laughs> what ISBE is doing in accordance with Senate Bill 724 that was signed into law by the governor on August 11th is conducting a landscape scan to understand which school districts in Illinois are already doing comprehensive mental health screenings and further, how are they using that information? So what they're learning through that landscape scan process, which will be completed and reported on to the General Assembly, I think by December 15th, is what is the composition of the team in the school? How many people do you need on the ground to be able to respond to the problems that get detected through universal screening? What tools do they need in order to effectively 
link all of those kids who need services with the services. Um, so I think, again, in an effort to be strengths-based and focus on using the things that we already know work and that are in place, we're trying to learn about a broad statewide strategy from the pockets that are currently doing this. I would add, though, to your point that the Surgeon General was quoted as saying that on average, it takes 11 years from the time a mental health problem is identified to the time that a child receives the effective appropriate service for that problem. 11 years in the life of a child is a lifetime. It's too long. And so part of what the blueprint is trying to do in this intervene earlier area is to get upstream of those problems and do a shorten that time and do a much better job of identifying problems when they arise, addressing those issues with an effective service early on. And schools are one of the two touch points. Schools and pediatric practices are the two places where almost every child is seen. And so we have to make good use of those touch points. We can't waste them. Teachers often notice that kids are having problems long before kids make it to a clinic or an appointment with someone. Right. And we have to create the pathways by which that recognition can result in a problem being addressed. Well, I think you're teeing up a beautiful segue to goal number two, which is streamlined processes, which I'm kind of interpreting as, okay, once we've identified that infrastructure, or we've adjusted the capacity of that infrastructure in a different way. Now we want to make sure there are means through which people can access those resources in clinically appropriate ways and in a timely way. So one of the things that I heard from parents and that I've witnessed in working with the six state agencies that serve children is that it we are asking way too much of parents in navigating this system. We're asking them to be strong advocates, to be diagnosticians, to be navigators, to be detectives, and to be like warriors. In... And to be clinical psychologists right. when they can't access right. anything and so they've got to remediate themselves. We're, we're asking too much of parents in navigating this complexity. And we, we also heard that what parents get, what kids get, depends on which door they come in to the public system, like which agency they interface with. So what I'm trying to do both with the technology that we're developing and the changed processes is to absorb all of that complexity and pull it back behind the scenes within the state so that what parents experience is a single centralized place to get information and to access resources and possibly get navigational assistance and to get the attention of the six state agencies who are now working together in, I think, an unprecedented amount of collaboration to overcome some of the barriers and expedite service delivery. But that really requires structural change, technological development, and shifts in our process, some of which we've accomplished in kind of this test case of the uh, interagency care portal that we've been using since yeah. June. The, the imagery that comes to mind for me is I, I love this concept of no wrong door. I talk about that a lot in addiction, and, and regrettably, almost every door is a wrong door, right? It's a door that kind of just goes off into the ether. What you're kind of describing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the identification of those doors and then making sure that the pathways on the other side of that door are all kind of leading to a centralized set of resources platform that then ultimately can help address the plurality of needs parents, educators, others might have. Mm-hmm. What does that kind of central, you, know, you mentioned an app a little bit earlier, like are we talking about a call center, an app, mm-hmm. plus other stuff that's all kind of interconnected? How far are you in framing out what that 
that central resource looks like? So we're actually pretty far along in that. My colleagues and I have been working intensively with lots of people at the state agencies, but also then vetting, we call them business process maps. So it's basically an enormous and very detailed flow chart that illustrates what will happen when a family needs help and all the various forks in the road and who has to be deployed from the state side to make sure that needs are addressed. That business process map is now being finalized and we are in the process of talking to the vendors who will develop this system, which we hope will be up and running within the year. As I mentioned, the Department of Human Services, IT, and I worked on a test case of this that's been in use since June on a smaller scale. And what we did with this test case was we overcame two of the chronic barriers to the agencies working together. So what I've always heard over the years is legally, we're not allowed to talk to each other, so we can't work together. And our data systems don't speak the same language, so we can't share information. What we did with this portal, we negotiated with the 12 lawyers from the six agencies on a consent form that a family could sign to say, yes, you six agencies, talk amongst yourselves about my case. Please help us together. So now we've taken the legal barrier off the table. And we have this secure platform in which every week, every Friday morning, this interagency team meets and we talk about these cases. We come up with sometimes very creative solutions to leverage the resources from the different agencies, but they're all able to then input next steps for each other. So DHS can throw the ball to HFS and say, can you check on this for me. And every Monday, each agency's representative gets a to-do list of the things that the other agencies have asked them to do. We've created a whole new way for them to work together. Um, And so the, the metaphor I've been using for this, and it appears in the blueprint, is navigating like a big mountain forest where historically you come in and there's no trail map and there are no signs and you're on a path and it's going to some intensive type of services. But as a parent, you don't really know where you're headed or what you're going to get or what you might encounter along the way. And what we're, what I've tried to do with that is shift that picture to be one where no matter where you enter the trail, there's an information kiosk and a park ranger who's a navigator mm. and can provide a tr- not only a trail map, but a differentiated array of services that you might be heading towards. It will be an online platform. We're calling it the care portal, where parents will be able to indicate what they're looking for. And in many cases, what they're looking for will just be information about what their child is eligible for. They'll be able to indicate whether or not they want navigational assistance, in which case they would be contacted by a person. They will enter some preliminary information about their child or the young person in their care, and then that will go into a queue that will be prioritized based on a set of factors. And every morning, the people at the Division of Mental Health and the Department of Human Services, which will host this care portal, every morning, those people will see what's in the queue and what they need to respond to. And as I mentioned, the care portal will be more of a routing application. It will get people to the next place they need, whether that's navigational assistance, a service referral, or attention from this interagency team that has representatives from all the agencies. And that's what we're using in cases where kids need more intensive residential services or inpatient hospitalization. I really appreciate the analogy. And as they're entering the forest, I almost want to take a step back, though. To your point, the parents have such a critical role, and not all parents are equipped to be responsible for that. So 
to take it even a step further back than that, where are these access points, whether we're doors or however we're looking at, to really screen for which navigational path to put on? So, you know, I just saw a news thing a couple of months ago about a team that was retraining pediatricians because they weren't ever properly trained to really screen or, or know, or, or when they were getting a sense that there could be some mental parts, because they're really trained in more the physical aspect, they didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how are you thinking about whether it's the pediatrician, or I think the two you use were the education system and, and the pediatricians, what are the training modules for those two groups, as well as the parents? And also, how are we alleviating pressures on those groups? Because if we're alleviating pressures on parents, I know there's a ton being put on those two groups as well, post-pandemic or not. Like, they've just had a lot continuing to be added. So how are you guys thinking about, one, that screening piece, and then the balancing act of, like, you know, how are they making this part of their process in a thoughtful way? Mm-hmm. So we've been working closely with the Illinois Department of Public Health, which received some of the money in the governor's proposed budget to expand the DOC Assist program, which is meant to provide like real-time consultation to pediatricians who may be seeing a mental health problem or need help either identifying or making a referral. So that's one way in which we'll be supporting those pediatricians. But in a broader sense, the Illinois Department of Public Health is also committed to the communications and engagement that will be necessary to ensure that everybody knows where to go for help. And, you know, we've also looked to many other states and examples of strategies that are in place across the country. So in Illinois, we have mobile crisis response, but some states have something just called mobile response, where there are people who can come out to a parent's home to just help a parent understand, like, is this typical developmental issue or is this psychopathology or some a problem that needs to be treated? The Blueprint talks about some of those examples and how we might leverage them. Obviously, we have a, a deep partnership with the Illinois State Board of Education, and there's a much longer runway for this implementation of universal screening in schools, but that's going to require a few components. So the first piece is this landscape scan that's underway right now to understand what are the elements of a successful implementation of universal screening. They'll also require technical assistance in those schools to implement. They may require technology. And I think we also need to think about training in things like mental health first aid that equip everybody in the building to know when they're looking at a mental health crisis and what to do about it. Because it's not just the counselors and social workers and the mental health team in the building. It's the security guard. It's the receptionist. It's the people who work in the cafeteria. Like kids may confide in or be in contact with any of those people. And if you're in a place where you have these touch points with kids, you need to be able to be mobilized as a resource. Which by the way, and you know this, but that also is a a creative to adjusting capacity. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're looking at that infrastructure and you're just, it's the provision of new tools and resources that can help identify and activate So that's now a great segue to the third goal, which is around intervening early. You've talked a little bit about the screenings. I'm I'm just interested, what have you all landed on the common screening tool that can kind of be ubiquitous across the state? 
how does that information in the screening get logged, get up to that central system so it can activate the queue on a daily basis? Just talk a little bit about the process. So as I mentioned, this landscape scan is meant to tell us what tools are in place where, how do people feel about them, not just how do school personnel feel about them, but we're also talking to kids to find out oh, good for you. How, how would you feel about answering questions about your mental health in the context of school? What kinds of questions would you be comfortable with? Who would you be comfortable with seeing that information? So those conversations are in process right now. And we've also talked to parents about how they feel about screening. And as you can imagine, people feel differently about it in different parts of the state. So there will be there will be challenges to overcome. But in answer to your question about the tools, because we don't want to undo any of the hard work that's been done or, or the things that are working well, I think it's more likely that after this landscape scan, ISBE will come up with a set of recommendations that might include an array of tools that would be acceptable to meet a universal screening requirement. I think what our challenge will be is the interoperability of systems, making yeah. sure that whatever the screening tool is that the school is comfortable with and that the local community is comfortable with, that things that are flagged, that there's a pathway to get that data and information into a larger system. In part because at the micro level, we care about identifying a kid who has a problem and getting them a service. But at the macro level, we want to understand where kids are struggling and with what. We did a lot of work in preparing the blueprint around adjusting estimates of mental health service need because that's pretty much what we rely on is estimates. Typically and historically, we might take an estimate, let's say from the CDC, and apply it to the population of young people and say, okay, if it's 21.3% of kids or 30% of kids who need a mental health service, we apply that to the population of kids and places with more kids look like they need more services. But what my colleague Mike Steele did was to develop a method, a more refined method for estimating mental health service need that takes into account some of the factors that tend to elevate need. Economic hardship, exposure to community violence, among other things. So when you apply those factors, you get a map that looks different. It doesn't just reflect where the population centers are, but rather it really helps you see where some of the maybe surprising places are where the need might be higher. What in-school screening will do is it'll give us a check on that estimation approach to tell us, well, where do we actually see the prevalence of needs, which will allow us at the macro level to redistribute resources where they're needed. The fourth goal in increasing accountability, that feels so multifaceted. You've got so many different agencies involved and so many different stakeholders. And now we're talking about, you know, increasing all of that to lunch line workers and and others who have historically not been part of this. And obviously that accountability has kind of a gradating effect as, as we as we kind of go from Governor Pritzker all the way through all the different systems in the state. Where do you see the locus of accountability as we go forward? Where is that accountability focused for the state? And then who are the other really important accountable parties that are adjuncts to that? There's, there's a few ways to answer that question. So first, let me just start with the big picture. So all of this is happening in the context of a logic model or theory of change that says, these are the things we're going to do. These are the changes we're going to make in our system. What do we hope to see? What should we keep our eyes on to make sure that things are moving in the right direction? And those outcomes are pretty simple. We want wait times to be shorter so that we know kids are getting what they need. We want fewer inpatient hospitalizations for psychiatric reasons so we know that crises are being averted. And we want fewer kids sitting in 
places like emergency departments or inpatient hospital beds who are ready to be discharged but don't have a place to go. So those are pretty kind of simple overarching outcomes for like the whole system's accountability. In terms of increasing accountability in the various pockets in our system that you mentioned, we're going to start with a few test cases for things. So one of the things that we're doing that's also required in the legislation that was recently signed into law is to have all of the providers who deliver residential treatment services to all report in on their vacancy, occupancy, staffed capacity to a central place. So right now, because those services are purchased by five different state agencies, nobody can see all that information in one place. So you can't manage that particular service as a system because each agency only has a glimpse into what they're purchasing and what their contract dynamics are. Putting it all in one place and managing it all together will give us the opportunity. And we did a test case of this also for the blueprint. There are some maps there that illustrate a tool that lets us display on the map everybody's beds, so to speak. Because at the end of the day, these are all all of our kids. Whether a family comes in the HFS doorway or the DCFS doorway or the DHS doorway, these are all Illinois children who need these services. So that's just one example of how I think we can promote accountability by raising the transparency of what is available to people and then managing it in a centralized way. I think there will be many other opportunities through improving transparency and centralizing things a little bit more will give us the opportunity to manage the system as a system instead of the patchwork of programs and services that it currently On the accountability threat, other key performance indicators, so you mentioned lower wait times, lower incidence of inpatients, residential kinds of stays, or average length of stay. What are other key performance indicators you all are thinking about in terms of recommendations for things that can be tracked longitudinally to see, are we really moving the needle? Mm -hmm. That's a good question too, because it relates to another one of our recommendations, number 10, which is information sharing across agencies. So as a state, we do a lot of monitoring of compliance. Like, did things happen the way the program plan said they were going to? But that's really about what we call outputs, not outputs. Comes. That's like, did the stuff that we paid for get uh, delivered? Yeah, did it happen? But it doesn't tell us, like, did it happen to positive effect? Did this kid no longer need services? Did Was this problem ameliorated? Were the services high quality enough and effective enough to deliver the outcome that we want? So we have a lot of work to do in that because we are so focused on the compliance and outputs. And I think it's going to depend on the information sharing that's called for in the blueprint. And that requires quite a bit of linkage across the different data systems in order for people to be able to really observe changes that are informed by what we see in all these different systems. And there are a couple of efforts underway for that. I'm not going to be able to spell out the acronyms, but they are HHSI2 and ILDS are two efforts to apply robust tools to link data across the state agencies, which is important in the context, for example, of the Medicaid managed care that, so there are Medicaid managed care organizations that manage the service delivery for kids who are covered by Medicaid, but those managed care organizations currently may not have access to all the information that they need to be able to monitor either elevated risk or outcomes. And let's talk about the fifth goal, developing agility. And I love the inclusion of this as part of the five goals, because we obviously live in a world right now where everything is just changing so dramatically by the day. Geopolitics, 
the the introduction of, of new permutations or variations of mind-altering substances. I mean, even think about like TikTok's emergence and how quickly TikTok amassed tens of millions of users and how quickly you know, children and adults started to make that a regular one, two, three hour part of, of every single day. So in this world that is just changing in dramatic ways, built on top of a system that is not even agile for the level of change we saw in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early part of the 21st century. Like, how are you guys thinking about what those systems need to be able to support and being able to anticipate and quickly react to emerging cultural, social, economic conditions that that could thwart all the other important work you're doing? Mm -hmm. A lot of the work of implementing the blueprint comes together around putting these structures in place that will give us the information that we need, but also the operational, like we call them business processes, but like the operational changes, the operational flow that's needed to digest the information and respond to it. So even just creating the data systems that I'm talking about isn't enough because if the data just sits there and it's nobody's job to look at it and say, oh, we've had 17 more cases that have waited three times as long for services, this looks like an emerging need. If it's nobody's job to do that, or if that information isn't put into the flow of the business process, then it doesn't really go anywhere. So we're focused on all of those elements, building the data linkages and accumulating the data. And and I'll give you an example. So I mentioned we've been using this kind of rudimentary care portal since June of 2022. And now we've staffed about 250 cases using that portal. We have a set of indicators that routinely get developed from the cases that are in there. One of those indicators that I asked for was survival curves. You might be familiar with survival curves from like the medical literature they're used to understand in the context of like a clinical trial for a new medication, whether it is life extending or whether it extends the time until like a recurrence of a problem. In our case, we actually like kind of flip that concept because I want to see a steep curve. I want to see that kids come into our queue and then they get resolved very quickly. But because now I have these survival curves and I can divide them up maybe by age or condition or problem or concern or need, I can see who waits the longest for services. That kind of like feedback loop, I'm doing it on a small scale with these 250 cases, but it lets me see, oh, we have an emerging need for residential treatment for kids with developmental disabilities and behavior problems. Those kids seem to wait longer than everybody else. I need, so so there's this piece, the data, someone to digest the data and know what's needed. And then there has to be someone to catch the ball who can say, okay, we have the ability to purchase more of these beds. So that requires that the funding mechanisms are relatively flexible to be able to do that. And honestly, we're still practicing with all of this. This amount of interagency collaboration, particularly on this agility, is new to everyone. But I think we're getting better at it. DCFS has leveraged, there are capital grants that allow them to relatively quickly provide resources to a provider who wants to build like a, a structure or um, or retrofit a structure to provide services. And all these agencies are getting, the fiscal people are getting together on a regular basis to talk about, well, what are the financing strategies that are going to allow us to be able to pivot when we need to? So it's a, it's a, there are a lot of mm. components to this. It's not a simple thing to accomplish, but we're trying these tech test cases, like these small tests of change and pilots, not official pilots in that we're not 
standing up full-scale evaluation of them, but to to practice working together in this way. And then once we see that it works, like with the portal, now we'll have the new and improved portal that will be like there to stay. Dana, what has surprised you about all of this work as you started it and really kind of got into it? What have you been surprised about in positive ways, like things that existed you may have not anticipated existed what surprised you about obstacles or impediments you weren't expecting to encounter what a great question so what has what has pleasantly surprised me has been the degree of interagency collaboration that has been possible when we switch from the abstract notion of collaboration to the concrete task of we have a kid in front of us joey is stuck in the hospital or in his parents home and needs a bed and we're not getting off this phone call until we have a solution for him what could we do? When you actually put those kinds of problems in front of people, all the people who are working at these agencies, they're there because they want to help people. They don't they don't want to provide barriers. They want to overcome barriers. And when they're given the opportunity to work together on thinking creatively about how can we meet this kid's needs with whatever we have in our system, they do it week after week after week. And that has really been inspiring to me because I have been in so many rooms over the last couple of decades where interagency collaboration collaboration has been the goal, but we never quite get there. For the barriers I mentioned, but also I think it's too abstract. I think when we actually have something to work together on that is vital and of crucial importance and urgent, people do it. And that gives me a tremendous amount of hope for being able to knit these pieces of our system together in a way that meets everyone's needs. It harkens back to a point you made earlier in the discussion where during the pandemic, we saw the exigence of systemic change that really took these huge bureaucratic organizations, health systems, health insurance companies, whatever. And they, you know, something that would have historically taken a year or two took three days, Mm -hmm. but it's just creating that urgency, that exigence that really, I think does animate us, Mm -hmm. which is exciting. Where do you think we are as a state comparatively to our our peer states. Where do you think this opportunity has glimmered? You know, I, I, I mean, I personally am very inspired by this conversation. I'm very excited to see where it goes and to all the things that you just outlined. I think it's it's a very different change and shift in how we think about what we're doing. Do you think that other states are as far ahead of us or do you think we are going to be the model that people look to? That's a fun thing to think about. I think that we are going to be the model that people look to. I'm often asked the question, is there a state that we should model ourselves after? Like, who's doing this perfectly? And of course, the answer is nobody's doing it perfectly, but we can borrow from a lot of other places because there are some places that I mentioned are doing mobile response wonderfully. There are some places that have great front-end portals that people are using. There are some places that are already doing in-home behavioral health aids. And what we've done is really canvassed the country to try to find examples of best practices that we are now trying to kind of fit together. But because, as I mentioned, we're in this context of having legislative and executive branch support and the resources to do what we're trying to accomplish, I think we are well positioned to become a model for how to transform a system. And do you think that there are any additional barriers that can be lifted through more legislative advancement? I mean, we do have a very strong and powerful governor's office and folks that are in office right now that are supportive. So how do you see this? Because as administration, 
administrations change, then priorities shift. So how do we make this sustainable? And what are you thinking about that in the longevity of changing the rules so that this can remain a priority? Yeah. So I'm in the process now of finalizing the first draft of this detailed implementation plan. And, you know, we've all seen beautiful reports and plans come out that don't result in a sustained changed reality for consumers or families or kids. And I think the way to bridge that to get from a plan that everybody is relatively happy with to a reality that is truly different, I think is in taking this very strategic approach informed by implementation science and other kind of rigorous approaches to implementation to really make sure that we build in all the supports that are needed. So for example, For each of the 12 recommendations, we're going through a process of first we design what it's supposed to look like, then we plan, like operationalize all these elements, develop the specifications for tools, then we install it and see like, does this plane fly? Are there any unintended consequences? And then we fully implement it. And as we go through that process, there are five areas that we're focused on when we want to support implementation. One is leadership and governance. Who is going to oversee the work? And to that end, we actually have five implementation work groups that are focused on implementing the tech recommendations, program development, school, community, and the fiscal recommendations. So that's kind of the teaming structure we're using right now. But with any implementation, we have to think about who's going to do this work. So that's the who. Data, analytics, and evidence use to make sure that we're accumulating information that can tell us whether things are moving in the right direction. Policy and fiscal alignment, which is what you were asking about, making sure that the laws and the resource allocation are aligned with what we're trying to accomplish. Practice and implementation support, like what training and communication do people need in order to be able to do their work, and then continuous quality improvement, ensuring that we're building feedback loops so that people know what to do with the information that we're accumulating. So it's really crucially important that we attend to all five of these areas to ensure that we have the contextual and infrastructure supports for what we need. And that means that in the process of developing this detailed implementation plan, we're also identifying budgetary and legislative implications um, for things that still need to be accomplished. This is just the first round. The eight provisions that are in the bill that just got signed is the first round of legislative action. I'm so hard by the conversation we've had this morning, Dana. I firmly believe we are in the beginning stages of a mental health renaissance. I think in some ways as a species, definitely as a country, I think it's going to take 15, 20, 30 years for us to really be able to look back and have a strong distinction between a future culture around mental health and well-being and what we have lived with for decades and centuries. And I think one of the things that's going to be so seminal to getting us from here to there across the country, and certainly in the work you're describing, is many hands making light work and, and all of us kind of lifting where we stand. And if I'm listening to this and I'm I'm not a paraprofessional, I'm not a clinical psychologist, I'm not a school administrator, I'm an investment banker, I'm a lawyer. Lawyer. And, and it's, this is an important subject to me. I'm passionate about what I'm hearing. I know how important this is. I don't really know how to engage. What would you tell the rest of us in, in, in terms of how we can be supporting our communities and then really be supporting the spirit of the work you're doing for the state to raise the bar for our young people in the future? So I welcome all the barrier busters <laughs> that want to join this effort. 
But concretely, there are a number of pathways we've created for people to provide input and engage with us. So I put out a regular bulletin on the progress of the transformation initiative. The last one came out in June and we'll be sending another one out shortly. The June bulletin included a link for anyone to answer a couple of questions about how they would like to interface with us. Like, would they just like information? Do you have a perspective that you'd like to share? Would you like to be part of an ongoing work group? And so we've collected hundreds of names of people who have perspectives that they want to share. I don't think I'm the expert. I think there are a lot of experts out there and everyone has their hand on another part of the elephant. So I welcome anyone's perspective, including if that perspective is this thing you're proposing isn't going to work and here's why this would be a better way to do it. Let me have it. So we've made ourselves pretty accessible to that and you know would welcome people's input. Dana, I can't think of more important work for the future of this state than the work you're leading. And I, I truly mean that. Um, everything about our social constructs, safety, economic productivity, it is all indisputably, indistinguishably correlated with the resilience and the health of the young people this generation were raising and then the generation they're going to raise and, and subsequently. And we are in a moment of crisis. And the fact that the governor has not only exhibited the leadership to make this work a priority, but has tapped just so many capable men and women across the state, yourself, of course, included. It's just, it's really heartening. So thank you so much for the work you're doing on behalf of my children and my neighbor's children and, you know, everybody in this state. It's so important and count us as ever steady and willing co-conspirators to support you in any way we can. Thank you so much for your support of this work. The HC3 Podcast is a production of Third Horizon Strategies. Associate producers are Megan Phillip and Topher Rasmussen. Executive producer is David Smith. The music is by Don Finter. Help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment. For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghanmegan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time.